today's scripture reading will be from Luke 10, 27 to 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. May God bless the reading of his word. Today, Minister Jeff will be continuing our sermon series on the parables of Jesus, and his sermon is titled, The Good Samaritan. Let us hear the words our brother has to share. We make our friends, we make our enemies, but God makes our next door neighbor. This is a quote from English writer, philosopher, and theologian G.K. Chesterton. And his point is that we don't get to choose our neighbor. He continues on in his writing and talking about our duty towards our neighbor. Actually, in contrast with our duty to humanity, he writes, where we might choose different ways to fulfill that duty, he notes and he writes here that we have to love our neighbor because he is there, a much more alarming reason for a much more serious operation. The neighbor is the sample of humanity which is actually given us. Now, if you're just joining us this morning, uh, last week we started a new sermon series of the parables of Jesus. And most of these parables we're going to be covering are going to be in the Gospel of Luke. The sermon series is called, The Kingdom of God is Like. And there's a point to that. And that's because the parables were one way for Jesus to reveal to his disciples the kingdom of God, who Jesus was, and, and what he came to do. And so as we work our way through this sermon series, different parables are going to help us to see more of what God's reign looks like more of the values of the kingdom of God, and more of what it looks like to be part of that kingdom. This morning, as we look specifically at the parable of the Good Samaritan, we're going to see that this question of defining the neighbor comes up. So if you're joining us at home, you can turn or flip or scroll or Google or do whatever you need to do to, to open up to the Bible uh, in Luke chapter 10, uh, 25 to 37. We're going to be working our way through the passage, and there's a lot to cover this morning, so it's going to help just to, to follow along. 
Now, here's one of the main things that I think we should see, because I think this is the point that Jesus is making. Love has no limits on even the least likely of neighbors. Love has no limits on even the least likely of neighbors. So let's take a look at what this means. Let's actually see if this is what Jesus is talking about, if this is from the text or the passage at all. Now, the scripture opens for us this morning with a story, uh, with a narrative, and the lawyer here is approaching Jesus. The text says to put him to the test. And so he asks him, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, being a great teacher, answers a question with a question. What is written in the law? And so the law, you know, for us, that's the Old Testament. In the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And the lawyer, knowing the word of God, answers with two main commands. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus then responds, you got it. You know, do this and you will live. Now, this is where, as we're reading, this is where the story starts to get interesting. Because in verse 29, But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? It's a little bit ironic that the, this lawyer is approaching Jesus, calling him teacher, when it doesn't look like he wants to be taught. He wants to be justified. He wants Jesus to affirm his own beliefs and his own actions. Now, the lawyer asks Jesus two questions in our passages this morning, but, but really, you know, there's always a question beneath the question. And here, the, the fundamental question being asked and addressed is the, the second one. Who is my neighbor? And that's because he really wants to know whether he can inherit eternal life without changing his life. So when the lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? He's bringing several presuppositions along with it. He has a lot of assumptions that he's making when he's asking that question to Jesus. Now his belief when he asks that question is that a neighbor is one to whom he will be ready and willing to help. Now that's, I think that's how he sees and defines the term neighbor. That's why he asks the question, right? To justify himself, to see who specifically, that verse he quoted earlier, uh, about loving your neighbor, who specifically that verse encompasses. And I think therein lies at least two assumptions, two presuppositions that he's making. That there is such a thing as a non-neighbor and that he can choose his neighbor. And so really the question he is asking isn't who is my neighbor, but who isn't my neighbor. The way he asks it in the formal way, it just kind of conceals some of that prejudiced attitude. It makes him look like he wants to learn, you know, wants to be taught. Oh, can you just, you know, clarify, you know, who's going to be my neighbor, who I really want to love. I want to know who to love. But he already knows who's it, who is his neighbor. He just wants Jesus to give his stamp of approval on who he doesn't want to be his neighbor. You see, when he answers Jesus saying, you know, it is written in the law that you should love your neighbor as yourself, he's probably quoting or alluding at least to Leviticus 19.18. 
And there, very clearly, it talks about loving your neighbor as yourself. And the passage is clearly defining the neighbor as the people of Israel. And so the lawyer, knowing the law, probably knows that. That's probably why he quoted it. It fits with his definition of neighbor and who he wants to be uh, to help. Now, what's interesting is that he's ignoring several verses later where God actually uses similar language to refer to the sojourner among them. So Leviticus 19, 34, same chapter. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. I mean, like, come on. You're cherry-picking verses now. So, I mean, yes, your your neighbor is Israel, but don't you see that this is still compatible with your neighbor among being the sojourner, the stranger among you? You know, basically someone who is not your people. They're not mutually exclusive. And so the Lord's question, who is my neighbor? He is low-key putting a limit on the definition of a neighbor. Now, I mentioned uh, at the beginning of the sermon that one of Jesus' points is that love has no limits on even the least likely of neighbors. So let's see how Jesus answers this lawyer. He, he tells a parable. The parable begins with a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, this journey was about 17 miles long. Uh, it had you know, different elevations. It also had a bad reputation of being dangerous. That reputation was there before Jesus and even in the centuries afterwards. This path that uh, this journey was on, the path was rocky, it was winding, it was surrounded by caves, which had been great hideout spaces for robbers who would lie in wait, waiting to, to jump a guy and mug him. And so basically, as Jesus is telling this parable, this man was fated to fall prey to robbers. And not much else is given about this man's description, but I think that's intentional. Most of the focus that we see in this parable is going to be on those who react to him. And so verse 30, what we see here is that this man was mugged, stripped, beaten, and left for dead. Not completely dead, but half dead, you know, fighting for his life. And then we get introduced to these other characters. And so a priest comes down to the road and the text says, when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Uh, verse 32, likewise, a Levite now, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so both of them, they see with their eyes and then they walk to the other side with their feet. And now we're not given a reason or a motive for, for why they didn't stop to help this man. You know, maybe they didn't really want to. Maybe they weren't able to. Maybe they were in a rush. Not really helpful to speculate beyond that. We don't know, and that's probably intentional. As Jesus tells this parable, he leaves the reason and the motive blank because that's not the focus. That's not the point that he's trying to make. Even if it's the one that we're so infatuated with. And so the priests and the Levite, they come and go. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, and you see that contrast conjunction there, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. 
The Samaritan sees this man and it leads to compassion and care. And what we find is that a lot more is said about the Samaritan than the priest or the Levite. Just, you know, just do a quick skim of the number of verses or sentences for each character. And Jesus describes this Samaritan as taking six actions of compassionate care. And so he comes to him, he binds up his wounds, he pours on oil and wine to soothe and disinfect the wound. Uh, then he puts this half-dead man on his own animal. He brings this man to an inn, and then he uh, provides continual care for him at the end. Inn. This uh, Samaritan gives two denarii then to the innkeeper, and, and that was enough for a, a good stay, anywhere between two weeks to 24 days. Uh, either way, whichever number you kind of want to kind of land upon, it's, it's a fair amount. It reminds me of some of the stories that I've heard recently of, of people in other countries who return home from traveling overseas and they're, they're forced to be quarantined for 14 days, but then they get put up in these five-star hotels, all costs covered uh, by the government. Now, definitely inns were, were in no way close to five-star hotel. Inns were actually also pretty dangerous at times too. But look, in both cases, you know, it's unfortunate why you have to be in that hotel or in, in the first place. But, you know, still pretty nice gesture to, to have a free stay. So, having finished this parable, Jesus answers then uh, the lawyer's question with a question. Who was the neighbor? Are you listening? Do you notice the difference there? The lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? But Jesus responds and answers, who was the neighbor? Jesus basically changes the neighbor from being an object to a subject. In basic English grammar lesson, he has re reframed the discussion to be one of personal identity. Who was the neighbor? That is, who was being a neighbor by their actions? Now, I really like how Jesus answers this question or answers with this question because it's so subversive and even confrontational in this subtle way. Because Jesus knows precisely what this man is thinking when he asks the question, who is my neighbor? And so when this lawyer finally answers at the end of the parable, he answers, the one who showed him mercy. He couldn't even bear to say the word Samaritan, he just says, identifies him as the one who showed him mercy. It, all this is more than just an answer that the lawyer is giving. Because Jesus' question forces the lawyer to include the Samaritan as his neighbor. And so, so how does he do this? Let's try and follow along. We, we, if you might remember, we said earlier that the lawyer's definition, his understanding of what it meant uh, to be a neighbor was someone to whom he would be ready and willing to help, right? The neighbor as this object that I am acting upon. But then Jesus tells this parable and, and ends it with a question, who was the neighbor? Uh, which is a different definition of a neighbor. You see there, uh, a neighbor is one who is ready to help. The neighbor is the subject who does the action. And now both definitions are true. Yeah, a neighbor is someone who is helped, and a neighbor is also someone who, who does the helping. 
But Jesus uses both definitions, the mutuality of being a neighbor. He uses this to cause the lawyer to confront his own prejudices. And so when he finally answers Jesus, the neighbor is the one who showed him mercy. He is admitting that a neighbor is someone who is ready and willing to help. But because of his own belief earlier, Jesus simultaneously points out to him that if the Samaritan is a neighbor, then the Samaritan is also someone who has to be, you have to be ready and willing to help. That the Samaritan is someone that you, know, you have a responsibility towards, a duty to love, an obligation to, to demonstrate neighborly love towards. And I think the impact of this realization is felt when we understand that Samaritans and Jews, they didn't get along very well, if at all. The, the Jews believed Samaritans were, you know, they had inadequate theology. They believed that they were descendants of colonizers and invaders. And the, the bad blood was also both ways. Josephus, he was this Jewish historian. He wrote about some of this black, bad blood. He recounts how one Jewish leader, he hated the Samaritans so much that he besieged their city and laid waste to it. Literally, he, he ended up digging beneath the city so that the ground gave way and it toppled into the river, into the water, and so that there was no sign of there having been a city at all. Now, he also recounts how the Samaritans, and they had their own temple, and there's arguments about which temple uh, you would worship at and can kind of remember that Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well in that account. But here the Samaritans, they desecrated the, the Jerusalem temple by scattering bones in it one night during Passover. In another instance, the, the Jewish people, they would signal the new year uh, by lighting these, these signal fires. But then the Samaritans started to light fires just to confuse them. And so these Samaritans were being trolls. And the Jewish people had to find a different way to signal the new year. So I think you get the point, right? Jews and Samaritans, plenty of hatred and hostility to go around. And yet, in our passage this morning, Jesus tells a parable to a Jewish lawyer where the Samaritan is the hero, the example. Not the priest, not the Levite, the Samaritan. The last person this lawyer might even consider to be a neighbor. But that's Jesus' point, right? That love has no limits on even the least likely of neighbors. And so Jesus picks the Samaritan to use as his example. He makes this logical argument, this greater to lesser argument. Because if you admit that the Samaritan is the neighbor, then the implication is that everyone else is as well. If you you know, really hate the Samaritan that much. Jesus' question not only forces the lawyer to include the Samaritan as his neighbor, but it also causes him to take up the perspective of one of the characters in this parable. Now, you see, you know, typically as we read stories, it, sometimes even Bible stories, you know, what we tend to like to do is we, we put ourselves in the shoes of these characters. And more often than not, we tend to put ourselves in the shoes of the hero of the story. And in this case, that would be the Samaritan, right? But as Jesus is telling this parable, who would the lawyer 
Think about this. Who would the lawyer most identify with? Probably not the priest or the Levite. Definitely not the Samaritan. That kind of just leaves us with the man who was mugged. So yes, Jesus is telling the Lord to go and do likewise. Show mercy just like this Samaritan. But his understanding, his point is that you only get to that point when you see the Samaritan and acknowledge the Samaritan showing mercy to you. And then it upends your entire understanding, your worldview of who is my neighbor. So the lawyer's question is, who is my neighbor? Jesus' answer is, who was the neighbor? And that's because love has no limits on even the least likely of neighbors. And that's the first point. Our second point for this morning is this. My neighbor, then, my neighbor is anyone I can be a neighbor to by seeing and meeting their need. My neighbor is anyone I can be a neighbor to by seeing and meeting their need. And so there's three applications I think I want to point out for us this morning. And the first one is this, and it's actually a a quote from this French theologian, but I really like the quote. Uh, He says, one cannot define one's neighbor. One can only be a neighbor. We can't, we don't, we don't choose our neighbors. You know, to quote Chesterton again, right? We, We make our friends, we make our enemies, but God makes our next door neighbor. Precisely because he may be anybody, he says, he is everybody. And so what does this look like for us today? You know, who is our neighbor? Who can we be a neighbor to by seeing and meeting their need? And I think one very easy place to begin with is just within our own church, especially a church that is as diverse and as large as ours. Michael Horton, uh, he's a Westminster, California uh, professor of theology. He says, a church is not a group of friends you've picked. It's a group of brothers and sisters God has picked for you. And and so it's a a very similar sentiment to what G.K. Chesterton is saying, what he said about making friends, but God making neighbors. It's easy to be a neighbor to the people in your small group, to the friends that you hang out with, who also just so happen to, to go to the same church as you. And, and you should, you should be a neighbor to them. But we're also called to be neighbors to those within our church who aren't in our small group, who don't run in the same circles as we do. And I think especially now, we need this more than ever. Because this pandemic has not been easy. It, it's even harder now to see people's needs and to meet them. It's, it's Some of us, Our our mental health has declined considerably. Others others of us, maybe we're single, we're living on our own, our family is not around because we're we're not from Massachusetts. We're we're missing out on connections, human connections. And, And so for us to get through this pandemic as a church, we need to be the church to each other. Not just the pastors or the elders and deacons, not just your core leaders or your small group leaders, but every one of us. And so to this morning, I want to encourage all of you who are watching right now to be a neighbor to one another. 
reach out, check in, you know, shoot them a message after service today. I'll even give you permission right now to, you know, pull up your phone and, and shoot a message to them right now. And we'll see how they're doing. It start with the, the, the people you know well, but go beyond that. Because if you stop there, I guarantee you, there will be people left out. And then our actions tell a different story. Who isn't my neighbor? Now, if you feel awkward, you're not alone. Uh, so I give you permission to use me. Uh, you can use me in the sermon, maybe as a, a shield, if you will, to hide behind as you approach your neighbor as an as a neighbor, and you know, send them a message and and be like, yeah, so um. Minister Jeff preached on the Good Samaritan parable today, and for some unknown, strange reason, your name popped up in my head, uh, just like it might be doing right now. And so I just wanted to reach out uh, and, and see how you're doing. Now, since I gave you this example and everyone heard it, now it's going to be super awkward using it. And since we're getting all meta about it, you're going to have to come up with your own. Or you can re reference this whole thing, and then both of you can laugh about it at my expense. Either way, so my, my neighbor is, is anyone I can be a neighbor to by seeing and meeting their need. Now, this parable causes us to confront the very people who we might not consider our neighbor by our actions. So in one sense, you might even ask the question, you know, who are the Samaritans in our lives? Now, I think one area to consider uh, is the topic of racial injustice, particularly against our black brothers and sisters. And, and by now, many of you, I think, have read the response that was put out uh, by our church in regards to racial injustice. And I recognize that this is an extremely sensitive topic, and it's one that is so easily politicized. And, and so we, we do need an abundance of God-given wisdom and grace to navigate this individually, as a church, and, and with each other too, whether it be with our friends or even our, our family members, or our parents, our children, or our siblings. And in sharing this as an example, you know, look, I'm not saying that everyone listening to this is guilty in the same way that sermon examples don't always apply to every single person. An example of how to disciple children only applies probably to parents. But this morning, I, I do want to raise this example of racial injustice against our black brothers and sisters and loving them as neighbors, because I think it's, it is a legitimate application of the text, especially when you consider the racial tensions in this passage between the Jewish people and the Samaritans and how Jesus addresses that and flips it on its head. And, and so it's something that each one of us has to consider for ourselves. The lawyer, you know, he doesn't say, well, look, that man deserved to be mugged. He went along that path from Jerusalem to Jericho, which was infamous for robbers. Everyone knows that. Look, why would you go down that path? Well, in the parable, well, he did. And so did the priest and the Levite. But that's not the point that Jesus is making. Jesus is not concerned about that. It's simply this, that the neighbor was one who showed mercy. The neighbor was one who showed mercy. And so by now, many weeks have passed since, you know, a lot of things have happened. 
things have calmed down a little bit. But our black brothers and sisters are still hurting. And look, sure, it's a lot more complicated than that. There's reports and statistics from all sides of the discussion. And there's probably truth in a lot of them, too. And there's arguments to be made in, in all different, for all these types of different solutions. And we're going to need God-given wisdom and grace uh, for all of that. But at the end of the day, where we need to begin is that my neighbor is anyone I can be a neighbor to by seeing and meeting their need. The lawyer's uh, answer at the beginning was, you know, love the Lord your God and then love your neighbor as yourself. And so we need to, to love our black brothers and sisters as our neighbors who we, who we see, especially if we can love God who we don't see. The second application is this, go and do likewise. Jesus has this emphasis on seeing and, and doing. Each of the passers-by are described as seeing the man who was mugged. Three times it says, when he saw him. And so I really like this quote from Klein Snodgrass. She says this, this parable is annoying for it will not let us avert our eyes. It's true. I preached on this passage two years ago, uh, and ever since then I've been thinking about this parable. It comes up in my mind every time I want to avert my eyes. It's really annoying in a good way. And I hope it's annoying for you too this morning. So there's, a, and there's an emphasis on seeing, but there's also an emphasis on doing. Three times again as well, we see this talk about doing. Actually, when you look at the passage and you see how it's kind of structured, the passage is bookended by it as well. So at the beginning, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And at the end, Jesus ends with, you go and do likewise. Now, it's, we're not talking simply about taking action. Because the priest and Levite did. They saw and then they left. They walked away to the other side. It's about seeing that leads to an action that demonstrates compassionate care, neighborly love. Compassion is, is empathy with action. And so in, in light of the parable this morning, I've actually asked one of our CB members, Winnie, uh, to share about the needs in the community and in our world around us that, that we might see how we can practically be a neighbor and to go and do likewise. Winnie, if you didn't know, she serves as one of the CB representatives uh, for our church-wide social concerns ministry committee. And so let's turn the time over to Winnie. Thank you, Minister Jeff, for the opportunity to share about the social concerns ministry. The purpose of the social concerns ministry, or SCM, is twofold. One, to educate about the physical and material needs of the world and the social injustices that exist within the world so that we may be empowered to do God's work effectively. Second, to encourage the congregation to serve the physical and material needs of the world's needy and to correct injustice so that we become the manifestation of Christ's hands and feet in the world. Currently, there are several opportunities the SCM provides for you to serve the neighbors around us, both financially as well as in person 
through organized short-term trips or regular service visits. You have a merciful heart for the poor and vulnerable. Currently, SCM supports several organizations that provide resources and help for the poor. The World Computer Exchange provides computer resources to the poor, which has been especially helpful during these COVID social distancing online times. Small business training and jobs are what peer servants help the poor with through microfinancing. For more basic needs, such as water, food, shelter, we have several organizations and service efforts ongoing with organizations such as Boston Rescue Mission, which provides food and shelter for the homeless, Rosie's Place, which provides food and shelter for homeless women, Habitat for Humanity, that builds homes for low-income people. There are church members regularly involved with sending teams to these organizations to provide meals and help build homes, to participate in the work these organizations do. Our annual big event is the World Vision Global 6K Water Walk, where all funds raised goes toward World Vision's effort to provide sustainable, clean water resources to poor communities globally which in the end provides health, education, opportunity, and a whole load of other benefits for the poor. You have a heart for foreigners and recent Chinese immigrants. SCM supports English as a Second Language program that is teaching English to foreigners around the Boston area. We also support the organization called ACCESS, which serves the Chinese immigrant community in Boston. Through our Summer Bridge program, our church has organized summer camps for ACCESS, to provide these immigrant children. You have a merciful heart for orphans and children in need. Well, currently Social Concerns Ministry Pro supports several organizations that serve orphans and children in need. Knowing Hope, directed by our very own Cindy Morrison, serves special needs orphans and poor children in Asia. Living Hope Global Ministry serves the vulnerable poor children around the world and our church has sent short-term trips to serve alongside this organization in Honduras. Elevate New England serves at-risk youth to provide support and mentorship to help these youth graduate from high school, get advanced degrees, and grow up to be responsible adults. Maybe it's social justice issues such as modern-day slavery and sex trafficking that really moves your heart. SCM supports International Justice Mission Route One Ministry in Amira these organizations are working hard to bring about justice, to end slavery and trafficking. Ways you can get involved with these organizations include gift baskets, providing gift baskets for their outreach efforts, helping them to renovate their safe homes, regularly spending time with survivors to develop relationships with these women, to let them know God values and loves them. Perhaps your heart is merciful to a people group that is not covered in the organizations I just listed. No worries. We in SCM want to hear from you. Let us know about the people group you are concerned about and a ministry that is serving those people. You can let us know by filling out the SCM fund request form, which is available from our church's website. You can give the filled out form to me or Stan Wang or any other SCM committee member. We will prayerfully consider your request. Thank you. Thanks, Winnie.
we'll have that form up on our website at crossbridge.life forward slash serve. And so if you go to that page, it'll probably be inside the missions and social concerns box and you can find the link there. Now, the third application for us this morning is this. To be a neighbor requires the right perspective. We spend all this time talking about being a neighbor to our neighbor. But at the end of the day, you know, how are we going to actually create in us a, a desire to go and do likewise? Because sometimes knowing the right answer, and you know, by the end of the sermon, maybe you, you will know the right answer, but knowing the right answer doesn't always lead to right behavior, especially when our hearts aren't in it. In 1973, there was a study that was done on these Princeton Theological Seminary students. And look, this is not a slight, as I give this example, this is not a slight against PTS just because I went to Gordon-Conwell. Uh, as I'm sure their findings on the psychology of human behavior uh, applies to all of us. Now, what they sought to study was they wanted to recreate the parable of the Good Samaritan. They wanted to, to put in place a similar situation and look at, you know, what were the factors, what are the factors that would motivate and drive and influence a person to stop what they're doing and to help a person out, someone out. And so they looked at two main factors. And the first one was religious thoughts. So that's, you know, that's if, if you considered yourself a religious person. If you're thinking deeply religious thoughts, if you knew the right answer, if, you, uh, if you're focused on doing good works, you, you would be more motivated to help people. And you would actually help them. And the second factor was time pressure. And so they reasoned if you were less in a hurry, you'd be more likely to stop and help a person out. And so what they did with this experiment was that they had these seminarian students prepare a talk on either uh, being a minister or being a good Samaritan. They told them they had to go to this other building across campus to give the talk. Now, some students, they were, they were told they had plenty of time to, to move to the other building. You know, you have time, take your time, enjoy the scenery along the way. Others were told, look, you have some time. You know, there's no rush, but, you know, don't delay. Don't dilly-dally. And then a third group also were, were told, you're already late. We're behind schedule. They need you over there now. So, so go. Go now. And as these students made their way over, there was this actor who played this type of homeless and hurting man that would be along their route. Uh, and so there was going to be no way not to see him. He would be in their way. He would cough, a signal, demonstrate in some noticeable way to the sem seminarian student that he needed help. And what they found was that time pressure had some effect. So students who weren't in a rush were a little bit more likely to stop and help this man out. But what was interesting was that religious thoughts had zero effect on helping. Even if, even if you were preaching a sermon on the parable of the Good Samaritan, like I'm doing now, and you saw the events of the parable unfold before your very eyes, on the way to preaching that message, it would not create a desire in you to stop and help, to go and do likewise. And in fact, the actor, as he recounts some of the, the events, he, he remarks that some of the students actually stepped over him on the way, because I think the alleyway where it was set up, it was so narrow. So what are we going to do? 
need the right perspective. If we're to answer the question, who is my neighbor? What are you going to say? If someone to ask us, what does it mean? You know, who is my neighbor? What would we say? I think typically one way would be, oh, we would just start listing out all the typical people in our, in our social circles. Our classmates, our coworkers, our, our friends from extracurricular, extracurricular activities, uh, families that we babysit or, or tutor for. That's one way. Another way would be, if someone asked us that question, we would you know, probably think back to the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so we might think the, the Samaritan is this example of compassionate care that transcends religious, racial, ethnic, cultural boundaries. And we put ourselves in the shoes of the Samaritan, the hero of this parable, and say, this is what it means. we, we got to be like him. In the same way that he extends this compassionate care to someone who is not like him, we too also need to demonstrate compassionate care to people who aren't like us. And then, in this case, then we'll say, well, then our neighbor is a 17-year-old single mother working two jobs whose car broke down and she needs a ride to work. Or a 21-year-old international student from Asia who's having trouble getting registered for classes. Or any of the other examples I gave. And, and it's true. But that's not how we get there. Because by doing that, if you think about it, by doing that, we're actually treating the Samaritan in the parable as the one who was mugged. The one in need of help. But that's not how Jesus tells it. When you think about it, would it actually lead to any change in our hearts when we already assume the hero of the story is ourselves? Or someone who looks like us? Imagine Jesus telling the parable to a Jewish lawyer uh, where the hero is a Jewish person. And the man who was mugged is now the Samaritan. I mean, that's how you and I might tell. That's how we're kind of envisioning it when we come up with some of those examples, perhaps. The lawyer's heart would, would not be challenged at all. He'd probably think, this is a foolish story. Why would a Jewish person stop and care for the Samaritan and go all out for the Samaritan? I'd finish the job. So that's not how the parable goes then. That's not how Jesus tells it. In Jesus' parable, the Jew, Jewish lawyer probably identifies most with the man who was mugged. Not the Samaritan. A, a man left for dead who at that point would receive help from anyone. Even an enemy. And then Jesus asks, who was the neighbor? The Samaritan. The one who he would not even consider to be a neighbor. And then Jesus says, go and do likewise. You have been shown mercy from the least likely neighbor. Therefore, you go and show mercy now. And I, I think this is the perspective that we need this morning. Before we strive to be the good Samaritan, we need to see ourselves also as the mugged man. That, that man, that, that man might be left half dead, but we, we're completely dead in our sins. And Jesus came to show us grace and mercy.
that we are no more deserving of than even the least likely of our neighbors. And now having been shown mercy, let us go and do likewise. Having been shown mercy, let us be a neighbor to our neighbor. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for your word to us uh, and for your spirit that convicts us of our hearts, of our prejudices, of our biases, of our lack of love for our neighbor. We pray that you would be working in us to love you more and to love others more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.